You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. John Cunningham from Queen's University, Belfast. His paper was entitled The Apothecary in Early Modern Ireland. Thank you, Mark. Uh, good afternoon to you all. And I want to uh, thank the conveners for a very, uh, another very worthwhile uh, Tudor Stuart Ireland conference. Um, I want to use the time I have today uh, to talk a little bit about apothecaries in early modern Ireland. It's especially nice to be here in the Moor. I think it's the only humanities institute in the country with its own built-in pharmacy, just the other side of the wall. Uh, so it's probably especially apt. So as Mark mentioned, I've been working on a project in Exeter, uh, early modern practitioners. Uh, what I've been doing really is assembling data relating to medical practitioners of all kinds in Ireland from about 1500 up to about uh, 1750. I'll just put our web page on a slide to remind myself to mention our end of project conference, which is taking place in Exeter in about 12 months' time on early modern medical practice. So I hope we'll be able to attract uh, some speakers uh, from Ireland uh, for that. Uh, one of the key types of medical practitioner we are interested in is, of course, the apothecary, traditionally recognised as one of uh, the three main group, groups, groupings of practitioners alongside, alongside the physicians and the surgeons. In this paper, I'm going to briefly talk about historiography and some of the archival or other challenges associated with researching apothecaries in early modern Ireland. I'll then draw attention to some of the data I've collected and make some suggestions regarding what we might be able to learn from it. Now, my colleagues uh, in England, are, who focus, based in Exeter, who focus on England, are plugged into a lively historiography around apothecaries and the international drugs trade, the medical marketplace, apprenticeship and training. And some of these aspects have also received attention in recent writing on medicine in early modern Ireland. Well, the, the, the works I want to mention, though, are a little bit older. The apothecary and the history of pharmacy in Ireland also attracted some scholarly attention in the 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, as mentioned on this slide, for example, from William Moore and James McWalter. Um, these are obviously very dated works, but they're also substantial enough, so they're, they're just interesting from a historiographical point of view. Uh, the works of Moore and McWalter, for instance, uh, certainly influence later perceptions. And what you get in those is a Dublin-focused Dublin -focused story of progress and development towards greater regulation, more efficient organisation, and so on, with the granting of various guild charters by English monarchs, Henry VI, Elizabeth, James II, and George II, serving as important landmarks. A charter of 1687 formally joined the apothecaries to the Barber Surgeons Guild of St. Mary Magdalene, while later in 1747, the apothecaries established a guild of their own, of St. Luke. Now, Moore and MacWalter didn't really show any interest in the Gaelic medical world that predated and also overlapped chronologically with the emergence in Ireland of the urban apothecary and his shop. Thankfully, recent scholars have done much to shed light on those hereditary Gaelic medics, who of course possessed knowledge of the medicinal qualities of various plants, herbs and other substances and employed them in their cures. 
The other major shortcoming of this older historiography is, it, is that it didn't really look beyond the walls of Dublin. And it, this is one of the imbalances that I've been trying to address uh, to some extent. So uh, with that, I'll just direct your attention to the handout that I've given you. Uh, what's on that? Names, addresses, and early dates of apothecaries that I've been able to identify outside of Dublin up to 1700. There's a couple of things I want to say about the list. First of all, it inevitably becomes much easier to identify apothecaries the further forward we move in time. Only six of the 63 mentioned here can be given a date before 1650. Moving past 1700, it becomes much, much easier, and many more apothecaries can be identified with a wider geographical spread. Now, these 63 names have been taken from a broad range of sources, and in some cases I've only been able to find a single mention of a relevant individual. This type of list is a work in progress. If anybody wants to add to it or point me towards relevant sources that I may not have come across already, I'd be more than happy about that. And I do want to mention Breed McGrath and John Bergen, who've been especially helpful over the last number of years, sending me various bits and pieces by email, uh, filling gaps for me. Now, it's clear that persons who describe themselves as apothecaries in 17th century Ireland operated in urban settings and my list is also shaped to some extent by the survival or not of various town and corporation records. For example, the records from Cork are helpful towards identifying the eight apothecaries I have there, likewise the five from Yall or the three from Belfast. The single Galway entry on the list, uh, Thomas Revit, uh, can be used to illustrate another important point. Revit was a prominent figure in Galway in the Restoration period and he later became mayor in 1692. Now, as some of you will know, the surviving corporation books for Galway are quite extensive, but I don't believe that they anywhere refer to Thomas Revit as an apothecary. Rather, he is simply Thomas Revit Merchant. The only place I found reference to his trade, as I put on this slide, is in the Alumni Dublinensis, where when Thomas Jr. went up to Trinity in 1684, his father's occupation was recorded as pharmacopula. While Thomas Jr. pursued a career as a clergyman in the Church of Ireland, Charles Revit, who was presumably a brother of Thomas Jr., became an apothecary, and he in turn became mayor of Galway in 1727. So the tendency uh, seen with uh, Thomas Revit Sr. in some Irish civic records for pretty much everybody to be referred to simply as a merchant um, certainly complicates efforts to identify apothecaries and indeed persons of other occupations as well. The impression I get is that the more personal the record, so as you move away from a civic record towards, say, a will or a deed, the more likely you are to find uh, precise occupational descriptors, which, uh, for my purposes, are, are particularly useful. Uh, what else can you say about the list I've given you? It contains a nice list, a nice mix of Old English, New English and Gaelic surnames, and a few that don't fit into any of those categories. The impression given then in the old historiography that apothecaries were a new English phenomenon that must have spread outwards from Elizabethan Dublin is certainly open to question. It seems reasonable to assume that substantial late medieval Irish towns had merchants whose trade included drugs, even if they might not have used the title apothecary. And again, again I'd be grateful for any insight that anyone might have on that. Another point, perhaps uh, the Gaelic names on the list, such as Farrell or, and Gawley or Magali in Athlone, don't respond to, don't correspond to the hereditary medical families, uh, many of whom continue to produce physicians in the 17th century. We might expect a hickey or a shield to show up here branching out into the, into the apothecary's trade, but I haven't really seen much evidence of that. Now, alongside my efforts uh, to identify non-Dublin apothecaries, the fact remains that Dublin was the most important urban centre and that the sources that survived for it are simply much better. 
While there was a company of barber surgeons and apothecaries in 17th century Cork, I really can't discover very much about it. By contrast, um, the surviving records of the Barber Surgeons Guild of Dublin, later the Barber Surgeons, Apothecaries and Periwig Makers, are useful, even if they contain nothing for the period uh, 1588 to 1688. Uh, That's the first item there is TCDMS uh, 1447. What this contains really, because the Guild was very concerned with collecting Jews from members, what you get is a lot of names, long lists of names, which can be cross-referenced to other sources, uh, such as the second item there, the, the, the role of free men of Dublin. While the Dublin Freedom Roll is extensive, it undoubtedly suffers from the same problem that I've mentioned in relation to Thomas Revit, uh, namely that apothecaries are frequently listed uh, merely as, as merchants. And the consequence of that can be seen in this slide, which just contains a snapshot. The Dublin Freedom uh, Roll is online. If you search for apothecaries as an occupation, this is part of what comes back. I'll just draw your attention to the gap between 1714 and 1747. There were, of course, apothecaries finishing their apprenticeships in this period and becoming free of the city, but they're not returned as apothecaries in the Freedom Roll. Rather, they'll simply be called merchants, and it's a bit of a job to to track them all down. Uh, This same problem exists for the 17th century as a whole, where the Freedom Roll only identifies 30 men as apothecaries. This is just a breakdown of what is there for for Dublin, 17th century, for looking for medical occupations in the freedom role, the barber surgeons are pretty dominant, quite a few surgeons, only 30 apothecaries, which is an underrepresentation. Thankfully for Dublin, it's often possible uh, to fill the gaps using other sources. Another obstacle to studying Dublin apothecaries is, th- is that they did not all belong to a single guild. As might be expected, the apothecaries initially appear to have been members of the dominant merchants' guild. Yet around 1590, at least one of them, Edward B., joined the Barber Surgeons Guild instead. His refusal to join the merchants saw him imprisoned at the behest of the mayor and sheriffs, resulting in a case before the Chancery Court, the outcome of which is unknown. Now, although James II's charter joined, as I said, the Barber Surgeons, the Apothecaries and the Wig Makers in 1687, it appears that at least some of the apothecaries stayed where they were in the Merchants' Guild. Unfortunately, the Merchants' Guild records were destroyed in 1922, along with so much else, and the partial transcripts that survive in the Gilbert manuscripts have almost nothing to say about apothecaries. Despite the various archival problems, it's still worthwhile, I think, to attempt to piece together a more uh, detailed picture of the Dublin apothecaries in particular. I'm just going to run through some of these points. Uh, one One of the better known is Thomas Smith, who came from England and rose to become an alderman in Dublin, and then the mayor in 1592. In 1566, he had complained to Lord Deputy Sidney that the locals refused to buy his costly drugs and preferred to rely instead on their own leeches or physicians. Uh, Smith duly secured a state pension and went on to prosper as an apothecary, although he's perhaps best known for laying the foundation stone of Trinity College during his, uh, during his term as mayor. Some of his property dealings can also be reconstructed from the Christchurch deeds, uh, while the Freedom Roll gives some insight into who his apprentices were. Among these apprentices were William Turner, who became free in 1580, and John Hatchman, who became free in 1589. One of the things we can see with Smith, and we see this elsewhere as well, is how the master-apprentice relationship develops into a familial relationship, as one of Smith's daughters, uh, Margaret, married William Turner before dying in childbirth in 1597. This family network also extends uh, horizontally. Smith's brother-in-law, Ralph Sankey, was another prominent apothecary who served as sheriff of Dublin in 1594. 
Now, Sankey himself was a younger son of uh, John Sankey, who came over from Buckinghamshire and settled in Offaly or King's County in 1562. And this overlapping uh, occupational, familial, civic network can be traced into subsequent generations. For example, Ralph Sankey's grandson, Sankey Sulliard, was also a prominent apothecary who became mayor of Dublin in 1649, and he in turn married the daughter of another apothecary, uh, Edward Thomas. Apart from engaging in trade and pursuing strategic strategic marriages in the growing city of Dublin, some apothecaries were also well-placed to benefit from another potentially lucrative, if precarious outlet, service with the army. Following the outbreak of rebellion in 1641, Sankey Sulliard became apothecary to Ormond's army. In the Reverend George Crichton's account of the Battle of Ross in 1643, Sulliard was was given a speaking part, chiding Lord Lyle for his cowardice in flying from the field. Another thing of interest, as with medical doctors, the importance of the apothecary's work meant that seemingly hard confessional lines, and as we know from uh, Mark Cable's paper and other works, these confessional lines weren't always as hard as we assume, could be crossed uh, even in the mid-17th century. Uh, For example, two of the Clonmel apothecaries uh, mentioned in the handout there, Walter Brennock and James Saul, received payments in the 1650s for supplying drugs to the Cromwellian Army Hospital at Clonmel, and they, they were Catholics resident in the town. Another example of where we can catch a glimpse of relations between apothecaries and members of the army is when officers or soldiers fail to pay their debts. For example, in 1667, the, the Dublin apothecary Gerald Colley, Gerard Colley petitioned Ormond for permission to sue Cornet Randall Moore for payments of money owed to him. Such law cases for drug debts uh, where details can be recovered give some idea of the type of medical bills that could be run up uh, with the apothecary at this time. For example, in 1614, the aforementioned Edward B. sued the executor of Sir John Talbot for £50, due for medicines that must have been supplied during Talbot's final illness. I want to say a little bit more about uh, Gerald, Gerald Colley as an individual. He's one of those 17th century apothecaries about whom we can recover various details. For example, there, there is a trade token for him. A couple of the people on your list outside of Dublin have trade tokens as well. And uh, Colley's token gives the location of his shop as uh, the Red Cross in High Street. He's shown in the Dublin Freedom Roll as a merchant who was made free in 1661, another one is another apothecary concealed by the title of merchant. Fifteen years later, the Merchants Guild listed among its possessions a gift it had received from Colley, a partisan of ebony. Not entirely sure what that would look like. Um, now, Colley uh, belonged to a new English family, various branches of which owned land in Offaly, Kildare and Loud. In, La- in Offaly or Kings County, the Colleys were neighbours of the Sankeys and the aforementioned Sankey Sulliard was married to Mary Colley of Castle Carby, his second wife, I think. So these various sankey Colley uh, connections perhaps explain how Gerard Colley ended up in the apothecary's trade. By 1666, he was well enough established to marry Constance Waring, a widow from Dublin. He also became involved in in acquiring land in Connacht, along with the apothecary Walter Prendergast, who appears to have been his brother-in-law. This interest in Connacht may have come about through his business dealings with Catholics from the West, such as John Brown and Gerald Dillon. Uh, Dillon was a wealthy lawyer, and the best insight into Colley's medical practice uh, comes from a bill for medicine supplied by Colley to Dillon in in 1676-7. This slide just has some extracts from this bill, which is preserved in in the Westport Papers in the National Library of Ireland. Uh, Just a few things to point out. We can see here 
uh, from this list. Uh, Gerald Dillon is, p- is paying for medicines for himself, for his wife and for his horse. Um, he also clearly had access to the best Dublin doctors. Dr. John Crosby and Sir Abraham Yarner were both elected presidents, uh, president of the Dublin College of Physicians, while Dr. Thomas Connor was a fellow of the College of Physicians. Dr. Scheel, I'm not so sure about. There were more than one. There was more than one Dr. Scheel around at this time in the late 17th century. Uh, so I don't know which one this refers to. The confessional boundary again is also being crossed. Uh, Yarner being a Protestant physician, Crosby being a Catholic. There's also a nurse mentioned who appears to have prescribed oil of almonds. Unfortunately, as with so many female practitioners at this time, she's unnamed, so we don't know who she was. Uh, Also of interest is that Dylan received an an emulsion by his own order. In other words, he was self-medicating. This, again, would have been normal enough, and we know that many households possessed their own own, uh, recipes for medical remedies, a point uh, recently highlighted, for instance, in the work of Madeleine Shanahan. Now, unfortunately, this sort of insight into what a Dublin apothecary was actually dealing in, what he was selling and who he was selling it to and how much he was charging as pound, shillings and pence on the right uh, is rare enough, although perhaps uh, some of you may be aware of other sources. Our finishing point with Collius's will, which he made in Drogheda in November 1683, and this is, fortunately, it survives. As you'll know, most uh, early modern Irish wills don't survive. What's perhaps even more unfortunate for my purposes is the absence uh, in the archive of inventories of property drawn up by executors. Uh, My colleague Alan Whitty uh, has been able to use such documents from early modern Wales to gain some insight into what was actually in the apothecary's shop at the point of their death. Uh, While Irish apothecaries sometimes refer to their shops and to their drugs and who should receive them and so on, I haven't actually come across any detailed descriptions of content in in, uh, in testamentary material. Uh, Before concluding, I want to jump forward a little in time to where our picture of Dublin apothecaries begins to become more organised in the 1730s. By then, Charles Lucas was coming on the scene and greater efforts were being made to regulate the preparation and sale of drugs and medicines. An act of 1735 uh, required all uh, apothecaries, uh, druggists and chemists to register and open their shops to inspection. It's only at this point, uh, there's a list from 1736, that we get a proper snapshot of the who, the where and the how many. In 1736, uh, 62 practices were registered, 10 of them north of the Liffey. Most individuals registered simply as apothecaries, but some were apothecaries and druggists, while some registered under all three headings. Druggists were wholesalers, usually registering warehouses, while chemists appear to have been involved in manufacturing, usually registering laboratories. It should be worthwhile in due course to cross-reference this 1736 list to other sources, not least to determine its relationship to guild membership and to further explore Lucas's criticisms of his fellow apothecaries. What was the result of this registration introduced in 1736? This slide introduces the findings of an inspection of 58 shops from 1744, as recorded in a manuscript in in the Royal College of Physicians. Uh, We might say that all was not well with the Dublin apothecaries, but most of it was well, uh, very well, well, pretty well. It's so brief, it's actually funny when you sit down to to read it. This this is inspection and this is regulation. Uh, It tells you almost nothing at all. Uh, In case you're wondering, the incorrigible was John Barnwell, apothecary of Church Street. Um, and while this sort of source is frustratingly brief, it again offers a snapshot at a fixed point in time which is lacking for the 16th and 17th centuries. 
So just to conclude then, working forward from Thomas Smith in 1566 and backwards from the registrations and inspections of the 1730s and 40s, it's possible to locate quite a few to locate quite a few apothecaries in Dublin and to recover something of their lives and occupations, their families and networks. The greater challenge is to work outwards from Dublin to north, south and west, where unfortunately large gaps remain in our understanding of apothecaries, who, where, when, why, how many and so on. But together with my work on physicians, barber surgeons, midwives and surgeons and that of my colleagues for England and Wales, I hope that all of this sort of data when we publish it online in our database at some unknown point in the future uh, will prove of interest to you once it's made uh, publicly available. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.